Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. And guys, we've got plenty of draft talk to get to. Um, obviously, we're coming up on the 2020 draft just weeks away. Uh, we will dig into that in a little bit. But first, before we look at this year's draft, uh, let's take a look back. Um, Jim, we've done this several years now. Um, taking a look 10 years back at the draft from 10 years ago. And um, this is always an interesting ex exercise and people always really like this and like to debate uh, what you come up with as uh, the order that the draft would go in if it were redone, knowing what we know today. And this one I thought was particularly interesting because 10 years ago, that 2010 draft class uh, had the number one pick going into it was uh, about as much of a certainty as, as I think we've had in, in a long time with Bryce Harper. And uh, while he has obviously had a very strong big league career, uh, the expectations were just so high from the very start. Uh, that it's hard for him. It's been hard for him to live up to those expectations. And now looking back uh, 10 years, you do not have him going number one. And uh, we got a lot of feedback from that when we put the story out uh, on, on social media, a lot of people uh, suggesting that the Nationals would still take Bryce Harper number one overall. You actually have him uh, going fifth, I believe. Uh, why don't you walk us through that and uh, what you uh, – what you saw as you went back uh, 10 years ago looking at that draft. Yeah, it's always interesting doing these because I just don't think people realize how few good players there are in a draft, really in any sport, but in baseball. You know, we're, So in 2010, <laughs> the first round was 32 picks. And when I got down to pick 32, the 32nd best big leaguer to me who came out of that draft was Adam Duvall, who was a $2,500 college senior sign in the 11th round. Um, and you, I mean, he's had a nice career, but you would never think Adam Duvall would be good value for a first round pick necessarily, but he would be. And, and it's, it, you know, it, it always kind of blows up Twitter a little bit, my feed, because this stuff, it, it's all, it's kind of like ranking prospects. You know, we're, 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 I'm lining guys up based on what they've done, but also what they're going to do going forward. And yeah, I'll buy the argument. I don't think the nationals are disappointed. They took Bryce Harper at all. He made six all-star teams uh, in seven seasons in Washington, which is amazing. Uh, you know, and he's going to hit a ton of home runs, but you know, looking back, it was like you said, there, there, not only was it Bryce Harper, there was a clear big three. Harper was going one. And then it was either going to be Jameson Tyone two and Machado three, Manny Machado three or vice versa. When I was looking at this, and again, you know, looking, projecting guys going forward too, I didn't have any of those guys in the top three. I, I and again, I think the top five or six guys you could kind of shuffle in, in in any different order and debate it. I went Christian Yelich number one. Um, he was a first round pick. He was only twenty third overall, and it was funny. He played first base. It was kind of playing out of position. He was he wasn't like a lack of athleticism. But, but there, he played first base. He didn't show a lot of power. So there's a little bit of a question on where did he profile. Um, really good hitter who who'd performed well on the, on the high school circuit and the showcase circuit. So I had him number one. I went with Chris Sale, who is to date accumulated the most wins above replacement of anybody in that draft. I had him two. 
Um, he went 13th overall. And the, and the interesting thing with him that year was that in my mind, and I wrote this, I've written a lot of stupid things, but this one I was right about. I thought he was a consensus. He should have been the number four prospect that year. He dominated the Cape Cod league. He dominated in college at Florida Gulf coast for two years in a row. But everybody pretty much looked at the fact that he threw from a low arm slot and he was skinny and you kept hearing, oh, he's a reliever. He can't start. He can't start. And then, as was the tradition at the time for the top college pitchers, he wanted a big league contract. And basically, teams ran away from him. Nobody wanted Chris Sale. And the White Sox took him at 13, and which was probably the worst place to go if you wanted a big league contract because Jerry Reinsdorf was not a fan of spending on the draft. They traditionally spent less than any team. And the White Sox told Chris Sale, we're not giving you anything over MLB's recommended slot, which was 1.65 million. But if you sign right away, we'll give you a chance to pitch in the big leagues this year, which, which he got. And then he was a star. I went Jacob DeGrom number three. It's kind of interesting that the, the two best pitchers in that draft came out of the Atlantic sun conference. Uh, people kind of know the story. DeGrom was a shortstop going into that year, still played about half the time in their lineup at Stetson, but began the year as a closer, moved into the rotation um, and was only a ninth rounder, you know, just, I mean, he was athletic. He didn't dominate his year. He had a 4.480 ERA, only 56 strikeouts in 82 innings, um, played against, he pitched against Chris Sale head to head twice, lost both times, but hit his only college homer of his career off Chris Sale in the conference tournament. Um, you know, great ninth round pick by the Mets, although it took a while really to come to fruition because he, he made four pro starts and blew out his elbow. And then after those guys, I went Machado four, Harper five, and then Andrelton Simmons, who's kind of sneaky good because he's such a good defensive player at six. You know, Simmons was at Western Oklahoma State Junior College. He'd come up from Curacao, had turned down some really tiny bonus offers when he was 16. He was a 20-year-old freshman. Um, even though he was playing at Western Oklahoma State Junior College, everybody regarded him as the best defensive player in the draft, which proved to be true. But there were teams that liked him as a pitcher because he was mid-90s on the mound, mid-80s slider. He wanted to play every day and, and got his wish when the Braves took him in the, in the second round. But I thought those were kind of the clear top six. And like I said, you know, I, I think you could argue them in a bunch of different orders. Uh, but those, those to me were the clear top six with, with JT Real Muto, kind of the, the, the obvious number seven guy. And Jim, I was I was looking through the list here. Um, interesting that several of the players who end up in your first round in the do-over are guys who weren't anywhere close to first round picks in the actual draft. Uh, you already mentioned DeGrom, a ninth rounder. Um, Kevin Kiermeyer is uh, a 31st rounder. Whit Merrifield, ninth round. Adam Eaton, 19th round. Um, Jock Peterson, 11th round. Uh, you know, obviously speaking to the fact that there are a lot of gems later in the draft. And of course, this is, uh, you know, something that is not going to happen this year. But uh, generally speaking, plenty of gems to be found in the latter rounds. Yeah, I mean, you know, of those guys, you know, Jock Peterson was a signability guy who had a chance to, to play uh, football at Southern Cal as a walk-on wide receiver. So he was kind of a signability deal. But these other guys... You know, Kiermeyer, who probably the second best defensive player out of that draft, he's won three gold gloves, was at Parkland, Illinois Community College. He'd actually been MVP of the Division II JUCO World Series a year before. I think there was a question as to how much he was going to hit. And he had a Purdue commitment, so he lasted all the way to the 31st round. He got 75000 so that was a, a pretty decent bonus for that round. You know, Whit Merrifield, 
hit the the game winning single, eleventh inning walk off to win the College World Series, but was never regarded as much of a prospect. I'll admit, all the years I did our Royals list for um, for MLB Pipeline. I never put Whit Merrifield on a Royals top 30, and those were not good Royals systems. His name kind of came up more as a, oh, here's another guy we kind of like. I mean, nobody in the Royals ever pushed for him. Baseball America never had him on their list. Um, and Whit Merrifield has, has been tremendous. You know, he, he's you know, led the American League in steals in his first two seasons and earned his – he was an all-star last year, led the American League in hits. And, you know, Adam Eaton, I, I still talk to, to scouts I talked to back then who have that area. And it still rankles him a little bit. You know, he was five foot nine. And I think the thing that, that hurt him a little bit besides his size was he batted. He was obviously Miami of Ohio's best hitter and he batted third in their lineup. And so he was trying to drive the ball more and he took a bigger swing and he wasn't as quick out of the box. And he came in the pro ball and the Dimebacks, you know, had him cut down his swing a little bit after taking him in the 19th round. And all of a sudden he was he was turning in plus plus run times from home to first and and he hit 385 to win the Pioneer League batting title and, and went from there. But yeah, I mean it's I mean it's a shame. Uh, you know, it's on one hand you could maybe say, okay, you know, in a five round draft this year, you know, they, these guys could always get drafted next year. But but you don't know. Like Adam Eaton was a 19th round pick as a junior. You know, what if he goes back to Miami of Ohio and he gets hurt and he's in a, a 20 round draft like there'll be next year? Like maybe Adam Eaton doesn't get a chance. Um, you don't know. But yeah, there's there's always great stories. You know, I mean the, the the craziest one, and I mean I could talk about this for an hour, which I which I will not. I will spare the listeners. You gotta, gotta go read the story. But I mean Evan Gaddis, who I had as the thirtieth pick, you know, Evan Gaddis, you know, wins a World Series ring, plays six years in the big leagues, you know, homers hundred and thirty nine times. And I mean, his story was crazy. So he's coming out of high school, he's supposed to play at Texas A and M. And, and he'll admit, and he admits today he was terrified of playing big-time college baseball. So he doesn't go to A&M, and he basically winds up smoking a lot of marijuana. His parents get concerned. He goes to drug rehab. He goes to junior college at Seminole State, hurts his knee, and that's it. He, he leaves. He's probably never going to play baseball again. Um, and he winds up, winds up basically driving around the country for three years, living out of his pickup truck, working a series of odd jobs, and then – decides to give college baseball another shot in 2010 goes to NCAA division two, Texas Permian basin and puts up like a 1200 ops and gets a thousand dollar bonus in the 23rd round and winds up having a, a lengthy big league career, which is crazy. So if a few of the other players from uh, that went later in the draft who end up in, in Jim's first round um, mentioned DeGrom, Kiermaier, Merrifield, Adam Eaton, Corey Dickerson, an eighth rounder, Cole Calhoun, an eighth rounder, Marcana, seventh round, Robbie Ray, 12th round, Alex Claudio, 27th rounder, Gaddis, just mentioned, 23rd rounder, and Adam Duvall, 11th round. So uh, what is that, a dozen players, Jim, from uh, outside the sixth round who would end up in the first round if uh, we did this draft over today? As one of the Jonathan and I's favorite scouting directors would say, the draft is hard. The draft is hard. So let's take a look at some teams that uh, that found the draft. Well, we can't say that they found it to be easy, but that over overcame the difficulty of the draft to put together some of the best draft classes in history. We're working on a couple of different stories right now, one of which is looking at each team's uh, best draft class ever. Uh, that story will be up uh in a couple days. And then we're also looking back at just 
the best overall draft classes by year in history. And uh, Jonathan, I know you have uh, primarily been mired in in your mock duty since you have a mock draft coming up, which we'll uh, get into in just a little bit. Um, but tell us about uh, some of the teams. So you and Jim and Mike Rosenbaum split the 30 teams in terms of primary ownership of those 30 teams. Um, amongst your 10 teams, I know you mentioned me a little difficulty in choosing uh, between a couple draft classes for a couple of your teams. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there were some of them are because it's, it's hard to overlook when there's one just great player, um, you know, who was responsible for that, that draft being, uh, you know, being successful. So the, the first one I came across was looking at the Mariners and then, you know, so then the issue is, well, which draft are you choosing? Is it, is it the Junior Griffey draft or the A-Rod draft? Uh, and neither one of them were particularly successful beyond getting the number one pick right. But listen, we all know getting the number one pick right is, is hard. Um, so, you know, that, that I, I, I ended up uh, not giving too much away. Uh, picking the Alex Rodriguez draft. I think the Pirates in the year they took Barry Bonds was another example um, where it's just so overwhelming. One player who was not the number one pick in the draft, but, you know, they, they got their, their, their top pick, right. Uh, and, and obviously he went on to do what he, he did both with the Pirates and Giants, but um, the two other teams that like I really loved were, were teams that like just hit the ground running in, in 1965 um, because the, and there's, you know, typically one really, really good player, um, in, in, involved there, but like you look at the A's in 1965 and it wasn't just one player. Um, you know, it was, yes, everyone knows Rick Monday was the first pick, but they, in, the, in, in 1965, they got along with Rick Monday, they got Sal Bando and Gene Tennis, uh, also, um, uh, in that draft. And then you look at the Reds in 1965 and Johnny Bench is, you know, is the key name, but they also got Hal McRae and, uh, and Bernie Carbo uh, in, in that draft. And uh, all three of whom obviously went on to have very good careers bench, uh, obviously the, the standout there. But it was sort of fun to see these teams who like right away added to their teams and guys who ended up being instrumental parts of, a very successful, uh, successful team in the seventies. Yeah, the uh, the A's are interesting. Uh, so we we put together, we compiled a ton of data um, into a, a spreadsheet and uh, broke down each team's cumulative WAR per draft from nineteen sixty five uh, all the way up until uh, the most recent drafts. And I thought it was interesting to see some of the teams that have, which teams have done best um, when measured by uh, the war that they generated from their drafts. And the A's were, uh, are among the, the best drafting teams ever when you look at it that way. And it did start out with that, uh, that 65 draft. They've had uh, some other very strong drafts as well and, and uh, have had very few where they just uh, 
you know, didn't didn't come away with anything. And it is it's interesting to look when you look from team to team, um, and it's pretty easy to see the way that we have it laid out at the teams that uh, have been uh, strong uh, for the most part over the course of you know, 55 years. And uh, the Red Sox, A's, uh, Blue Jays, Nationals slash Expos and Royals are some teams that obviously don't go all the way back to uh, 1965. But those are the top five teams just in terms of average war produced per draft over the course of their uh, uh the life of their their franchises. Um, I thought, and, and Jason, you should take credit because I think you compiled a lot of that stuff. Jonathan and I had nothing to do with compiling it, and it's I, I can get lost in rabbit holes. But it was striking to me that when you look at average WAR per draft, the Red Sox are first. They average five point two WAR more than the A's, who are second, and that gap is greater than the gap between the A's, who are second and the Braves who are 11th. I mean, the Red Sox are far and away uh, ahead of every team and outside of maybe the 2010s. Well, you know, even I, I, it looks to me like eyeballing this, they, it looks like they rank in the top 10, I think just about every decade, maybe not the nineties and it, but they were close in the nineties too. Yeah, exactly. They are uh, among the top in the sixties, eighties, 2000s um, and the 2000s uh, overall from 2000 through 2019 uh, are tops as well. So yeah, you're right. Um, and I know they, they're one of your teams, Jim. Um, you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the team's top draft halls uh, that you've been looking at over the past couple of days? Yeah, you know, and, and I did a story on this a few years ago that I think we're going to dust off. And it was funny, when I when I did the story five years ago, I think, I think six of the top best drafts of all time that I rated without the the use of your handy spreadsheet um, were uh, were teams that I cover for the pipeline. So I, got, I was familiar with a lot of these. I mean, the, the gold standard is, is the 68 Dodgers. Um, and, you know, the, the story behind that, you know, when, when teams started the draft, yes, you know, as John pointed out, the A's, A's actually had three really good drafts right in a row from 65 to 67, which arguably are the three best back-to-back-to-back drafts that teams ever had. But a lot of teams were struggling with adapting to a draft. You know, how do you go about it? You know, they didn't have familiarity. And the Dodgers, it was interesting. In the first three years of draft, the Dodgers kind of had two lackluster drafts. And they had a pretty good 66 draft where they found three all-stars, Charlie Huff, Bill Russell, and Billy Grabarkowitz, and a rookie of the year in Ted Sizemore. But during that time period, too, they'd gone from winning a World Series in 65 to finishing in eighth place in 67. So internally, they're like, we need to do a better job the draft. You know, the, the team's slipping. What are we going to do? And Al Campanis, who was the club scouting director ever since they'd moved from Brooklyn, decided that the smartest thing he could do was to talk to the local football teams because football had had a draft since 1936. So he spoke with the owner of the Los Angeles Rams, Dan Reeves, and the coach of the San Diego Chargers, Sid Gilman. And Gilman told Campanis to talk to his director of player personnel, was a guy named Al Lucasal. And Campanis always credited Al Lucasalli with showing him how to draft, you know, looking at things like bet drafting for best athlete versus drafting for need, using a scale so you could rank players and compare them to one another. And they went out 
and, and they just crushed the 1968 draft. And, and even today, nobody's had a better draft. Now, now back then, there were multiple drafts of multiple phases. So in, in the January secondary phase, they got Davey Lopes, who, who became an all-star. And they also got Jeff Zahn, who had a long career. Then they, they come forward into the, the regular June draft, which is the one draft we know today. And they got Bobby Valentine in the first round. He had a long career if he didn't become a star. Bill Buckner in the second round. Tom Pachorek, who, who was an all-star in the fifth round and actually got drafted in the NFL draft as well. Joe Ferguson in the eighth round. Doyle Alexander in the ninth round. All those guys had long careers. And then they come back in the June secondary phase and they cap their draft off by taking a pair of college third basemen Steve Garvey and Ron Say. So that's that's six future All-Stars, 23 All-Star game appearances in that draft. Um, 236 total war, far and away the record. All, all three of those numbers are records. And that basically set the stage for their, their, their run from 1974 to 1981, where they went to four World Series and won one World Series championship. So that was that, – that, I don't know if that draft will ever be top. That'll be tough to do. And then I also, the second best draft was one of my teams, and that would be the Red Sox, who, as we just pointed out, have drafted consistently better than any other team. They had great drafts in 1976 with Wade Boggs, Bruce Hurst, John Tudor. 1989, I think, is the only draft still with two MVPs and Jeff Bagwell, Mo Vaughn, as well as Paul Quantrill. 1968, they got Cecil Cooper and Ben Ogilvie, and then three pitchers who pitched forever, Bill Lee, Lynn McLaughlin, and John Curtis. All those would be the best draft for a lot of clubs. And for them, it's not even close. Their best draft was 1983, the Roger Clemens draft for them. Clemens was a guy who, going into the year, some clubs had him as the best college pitcher going into that spring. He slumped in May. Texas pitched him third in their rotation. They had a loaded rotation. It's a kind of... It was, it was Coach Gustafson's way of kind of, you know, firing Clemens up um, back then. And so he wound up only being the seventh college pitcher drafted, 19th overall. And they also got Ellis Burks uh, in the January draft that year out of a Texas junior college. And those two guys alone combined for 189 war, which is more than any team ever got out of a draft, just as those two players alone, except for the 68 Dodgers. So, Jim, I, I went back through um... – and looked at the Red Sox drafts uh, by decade. And you're right, uh, they were third best in the 60s, fourth best in the 70s, number one in the 80s, number one in uh, from 2000 through 2009, and then uh, number nine in 2010 through 19. And the, the one decade... Uh, that they were not among the the top drafting teams in baseball was the 90s when they were uh, 17th in terms of uh, overall war generated from their drafts in that decade. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty amazing track record um, of of consistency there. So, Jim, I I think it's been interesting. Uh, You and I have been going back and forth quite a bit as we've looked at this and you're, you're trying to identify the best drafts of all time in terms of the, the entire year. And it's it's been a, a really interesting to look at. And I think one of the most difficult things is projecting, you know, what's going to happen with players that are still playing. And, you know, it's, it's impossible, obviously, to accurately project 
what's going to happen with these players, but uh, done our best to do that. Um, can you uh, can you talk about some of those difficulties in trying to compare across from generation to generation, and and maybe some of the more recent draft classes that appear like they could uh, become among the the best of all time? The, the individual team draft classes. No, I'm talking about uh, the the by year, the uh, the overall. Draft right, right. So, so, do we want to give away the 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 secret before the story comes out, or? Well, that, I don't think you necessarily want to need to give okay, away. So we'll talk that. about it in general as a sneak preview because we'll talk about this more next week. Yeah, it, it is tough because obviously the drafts that are completed, you know how the players did, and the drafts where the players are still active, you can try to project, but then like you and I have both played with projection systems for various things, and. I always feel like they kind of don't foresee players getting hurt or tapering off. You know, like I just think if, you know, Ken Griffey looked like he was going to hit Ken Griffey Jr. was going to hit 800 home runs before he got to the Reds and then he couldn't stay healthy and he, and he fell well short. So you have that. I, I also think you and I were, were discussing one of the things that's made that story kind of interesting is I think the earlier drafts are disadvantaged because in the 1965 draft, there were only 20 teams. And, you know, drafts are going to accumulate war over 20 to 25 years. But so for the 1965, let's say if, if I'm drafting in 1965, I, I'm drafting players for, for you know, Major League Baseball that expanded from 20 teams to 26 teams over the period that, that, that those players are going to accumulate war. But if I'm drafting in the 80s, I'm drafting players from an era that's going to span 26 teams growing to 30. So like, it's, you know, it's like you have four extra teams worth of players, theoretically, you know, generating war. So it's, it's interesting. I, I'm still, I mean, I know what team is number one. I, I, I think when we do the story, I am going to rely on what drafts have done and then examine which drafts could make the leap. But, you know, the eighties were very strong draft wise I think a because, like I said, not not the main reason, but like there were more teams they were fueling going forward. But that was in, in a lot of ways the golden era of college baseball, where you didn't have limits on games or scholarships or you know practice time, and so uh, you know college baseball was thriving in terms of talent that way. And teams just weren't signing guys out of high school, and so you'd have you know, Barry Bonds and Will Clark and Barry Larkin and Randy Johnson and, and on and on and on guys who today would get snatched up out of high school. They were drafted high out of high school. They just didn't sign. And so, it, you know, I think there were fewer, I think there was a better college crop in general and fewer mistakes being made on the college crop, but it does look like there's been kind of a, a Renaissance like 2009, 2010, 2011, uh, that when uh, when our kids are doing this podcast 20 years from now, they may discuss that uh, that those were, were some of the best draft years, even though they're, they're still kind of midway through accumulating war. Yeah, I found it interesting, uh, something that I, I just put together shortly before the podcast here was looking at the number of players from each draft uh, who have a uh, – positive career war and the draft that has the most players with a positive war in history is the 2011 draft uh, with 120 different players. Uh, and we were looking at this 
specifically related to the 2010 draft. We were talking about the redraft and the 2010 draft uh, has 104 such players. Uh, 1986 is number two behind 2011. Uh, But there are some of the more recent drafts in there, several of them, but 86 and 87, uh, 86 and 87 are the only two that are not from the 2000s. Um, And as you mentioned, Jim, the the 80s, there's a period there of a few years uh, with some very strong drafts. Now, this is just looking at the overall number of players who had positive war. We also have broken down by uh, the drafts that have the most players with five plus war, 10 plus, 20 plus. 40 plus, and obviously it's too early to know for a lot of those draft classes, uh, 2010, 11, 12, still with a lot of players accumulating more. Um, but it seems like those classes, like you said, do have the potential to uh, ultimately become among some of the best draft classes ever. So, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Joe. I was going to say, yeah, it did. I mean, this is one I've, I've definitely gotten down, lost down the rabbit hole because you're not just lining up players in order. You're comparing, you know, a hundred something players from one year to a hundred players from another year. It, it, it's been fun, but it's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's, it's very easy to get lost down that rabbit hole if you love draft history as much as I do. All right. So en- enough of draft history though, for now, let's, uh, let's turn to this year's draft. Um, there's a story on the site now. Uh, Mike Rosenbaum is uh, taking a look at the top two-way talents in this year's draft class, and um, you know this is something that I think is is always fun to look at. And a couple of years ago, we really started looking at it because the top two overall ranked players on our top draft prospect list back in 2017 were both legitimate two-way players and Hunter Green and Brendan McKay. And McKay obviously has gone on to play both ways, and it was pretty well known um, even going into the draft that Hunter Green was going to pitch. But um, at that time, that got us looking back at the best two-way players ever. And then now uh, we're looking at some of the better two-way players in this year's draft class. Um, There are a half dozen that Mike lists that are on our top 200 prospects list. Um, led by Cade Horton, uh, and then followed by Mason Wynn, Nolan McLean, and Horton and McLean are actually a couple of two-way guys in two senses, uh, both in terms of hitting and pitching, but they're also baseball and football prospects. Um, Jonathan, why don't you uh, talk about a couple of your guys that are that are on this list? Well, that's funny because I think only guy that's mine on this list is Casey Schmidt. Um, but I saw a lot of these guys over the high school, you know, high school. McLean was really interesting because <clears throat> and both Jim and I saw him in the PDP league and he, he like, he wasn't that well known. Um, I think he was a guy who, you know, if you were to make a list of guys in the PDP league who helped themselves the most, just in terms of kind of jumping more on the draft radar, he, he'd be, He'd be pretty high on that list. Um, he's big and physical, um, and he was good on both both sides uh, over the summer. Um, you know, so uh, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, the the one guy on the list that's mine is Casey Schmidt, and he's you know he's a 
in college, San Diego State. And when we were first putting together our list in the, you know, in the winter for, for, for our early preview list, it was kind of split uh, who, whether people liked him better as a, as a third baseman or as a, as a reliever. He's been uh, closer, you know, over the first two years for San Diego State and, you know, really good splitter uh, to go along with a low 90s fastball. Um, there wasn't a lot to go on this spring, but more people I talked to preferred him as a position player. So I don't know if it shifted some um, or they just, you know, there is a limited ceiling. Uh, he is a reliever only um, rather than a guy like, oh, you may want to put him in, you know, give him a chance to start if he were to focus on pitching. I guess the good news is that you can send him out as a position player. That's true with a lot of these guys, but especially the guys who have some college track record. Um, and he hit for a lot of power in the Cape Cod League last summer. Uh, but if, if say, he, there's too much swing and miss and doesn't get to the power and he doesn't hit, you know that you could probably put him on the mound and that fastball splitter may be enough to get him to a big league ball. I, I mentioned the top three guys on this list. Uh, following those three in Horton, Wynn, and McLean, who are ranked uh, number 47, number 54, and number six, 66 on our top 200 list. Uh, Colt Keith at number 88 is a third baseman slash right-handed pitcher. Casey Schmidt, third baseman slash right-handed pitcher, is number 118. And Caden Grice, outfielder, left-handed pitcher, is number 162. Um, and then also some honorable mentions listed guys who uh, clearly are going to be drafted one way or the other as a pitcher or a hitter, but have uh, played both ways. Max Meyer, um, who is the highest ranked player in this story, um, number nine overall, definitely a pitcher. But uh, as Mike notes here, the fact that he received regular at bats as a sophomore um, when he slash 265, 323, 314, over 121 at-bats, speaks to his overall athleticism. Um, and, you know, Meyer, uh, I know initially, Jim, when you did the uh, top tools for this draft class, was rated as having two of the best pitches in the entire draft class, which that changed after we expanded the list. Um, but, you know, the fact that this guy has two of the best pitches – and was a two-way player, uh, like Mike said, really speaks to his athleticism. Also on the list, Robert Hassel, um, Cade Cavalli, Alec Burleson. Um, Jim, who on this list, uh, I think there are maybe a couple guys that stand out to you as the, the most legitimate two-way players. Yeah, I think there's three guys that theoretically could get drafted each way. You know, Jonathan mentioned McLean, and, and the funny thing on him is Jonathan's right. I mean, he looked really good as a pitcher last year. And when I wrote up his his scouting report in the winter when we did our initial top 100, I was focusing on the fact that scouts wanted him to pitch. Well, he, he cleaned up. He had a hitch in his swing, which he's cleaned up. He's cleaned up his footwork, too. He looks a lot better as a hitter, a lot better at shortstop. He's not going to play shortstop in pro ball. He'd be a third baseman. So, so I, I think the guys I talked to actually now like him more as a hitter. I think that one could go either way. And he really wants to play football at Oklahoma State. So I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens to him signability. You know, Mason Wynn, 
I think more teams like him as a pitcher. I I could see you drafting him as a shortstop, and, and he kind of showed what he could do. He had one of the best single day performances at, at the Worldwood Bat Association World Championship Showcase in Jupiter last October, when he hit 98 miles an hour, showed a, a plus curveball and a plus changeup, and hit a home run in the same game. Now he's a little guy, so you get some size questions about him on the mound. Um, you know, he, he probably needs to be, you know, a little bit more polished as a hitter, but he's legit both ways. And then the guy who's kind of fascinating, but I don't know if in a five-round draft where you didn't get much of a chance to look at him and figure him out this spring, he gets drafted. But Caden Grice from South Carolina is super interesting. I've had more than one guy tell me they would put an 80 on the 2080 scale on his raw power. He does come with some swing and miss, but it's huge raw power. And then he's six foot six on the mound. He's up to 94 and shows flashes of three solid pitches. He's kind of built like Joey Gallo, who had a similar profile coming out of high school, although Gallo threw even harder. I mean, Gallo was up upper 90s. But and I'm not saying Kane Grice is going to be Joey Gallo, but guys are intrigued by him. It's just very hard to to know exactly what to make of him because there's risk both sides. It's huge raw power, but swing and miss. And he's up to 94, but, you know, he still needs some polish on the mound too. But he, he's, he's really, really interesting. Yeah, you mentioned Joey Gallo. Um, you know, Jim, I talked about your story from a couple of years ago where you looked at some of the best two-way players of all time. And, of course, that conversation has to start with Dave Winfield, um, who, you know, and obviously in addition to being a two-way player on the diamond was also, uh, we talked about, we talked about a couple of the guys in this year's class being two-way guys in, in terms of playing baseball and football. Uh, he did that and tack on being an elite basketball player as well. Uh, so he obviously is has to start that conversation, but also guys on that list included John Olrude, uh, Josh Hamilton, Nick Markakis, uh, some guys who actually went on to play both ways in the big leagues and Rick Ankeel, uh, Adam Lowen. But then there are a lot of guys that, uh, you know, you wouldn't consider to, to have been the best of all time. Um, but a lot of guys, you just, you know, after they've established themselves in the big leagues and they are who they are in your head, you, you know, a lot of people, I think, wouldn't even necessarily realize or remember that these guys were um, legitimate players both ways, either in, in high school or college. But um, I was Zach recently – Zach Greinke's a great example of that. Because I really think going into his senior year, I think guys were almost on him more as a third baseman. You know, certainly going into that summer before his senior year. And we all, you know, we've all read stories about how much Zach likes to hit. And I don't think people realize that he was that kind of, I mean, he was a, he probably would have been at least a top three rounds pick as, a, as an infielder coming out of high school. Yeah, I remember we saw, we saw Gallo. Um, and I think I, I mentioned to someone recently that, you know, my first the first time seeing him was pitching in what what was what would that have been, Jonathan? It was a USA baseball event, I believe. Um, but I, I, I remember him throwing, you know, in, in my mind, high, right? Yeah, I think it must have been in my mind. He was from that very first time I saw him, he was a pitcher, um, which is funny to think about now. Um, uh, but also recently I've, I've been uh going through some old scouting video of players and it was funny to see like you know we have all this all this video uh, access to all this video of these players current big leaguers but you go back and watch it and you see guys like 
Jack Flaherty playing shortstop and Cody Bellinger pitching and Matt Olson pitching, uh, believe it or not, Mike Trout pitching. Um, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the two, 2010 draft class that, you know, people didn't really know what position Yelich was going to play. And I you know, saw a video of him looking not, not entirely so nimble at first base, not so natural at first base. Um, another interesting player uh, that I saw playing first base when digging through some of this old scouting video was uh, none other than CC Sabathia, um, which was pretty funny. Um, and then, Buster Posey, I think people know that he uh, that he pitched because he pitched uh, you know all the way into college. But uh, you know, Jim, I know he was he was a pretty legitimate pitching prospect, at least uh, some thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember our scouting report at Baseball America kind of likened him to a like a, a Greg Maddox type when he was on, which is a nice comparison. But yeah, he I, I think he's I, I think his stuff dipped a little bit as a, as a high school senior and he was so committed to Florida state anyway, but he was a legitimate top three or five round guy as a, as a pitcher. And I, and I think on a lot of these guys, especially, you know, you, you mentioned Trout or, or Bellinger, these guys were good athletes. I mean, athleticism, I, I think sometimes fans, it's an underrated component of what goes into a successful pitcher. You need athleticism to repeat your delivery and, and do things like that. And so it's not a surprise that a lot of our, our best baseball athletes were pitchers too. Well, and sometimes guys like don't end up doing what you think they're going to do. Uh, and it, and a whole other added wrinkle that we probably don't have time to get into today is just that more teams are willing to at least entertain the idea of letting a guy do do both at the same time, not do both like the Red Sox did with, with Casey Kelly, which was let him play shortstop until he realized that he wasn't good enough to play shortstop and then put him on the, on the mound. Um, but even like a guy like Sean Doolittle, I mean, years and years ago, I always go back to this story, but I did a, I did a story. He and Joe Savory were coming out the same year. Savory was at Rice and Doolittle was at University of Virginia. And most people looked at Savory as a pitcher and Doolittle as a hitter. Um, they both did both, you know, as a, as a starting pitcher. Um, and you know, the funny thing with Doolittle is that he was drafted as a hitter and then because of injuries, had to switch to, to pitching. Um, and obviously we've seen what's happened there. And Joe Savory kind of switched back and forth a, a couple of times and even touched the big leagues. Um, you know, even though at the time coming out of the draft, most people, if, if you polled people, they thought Savory was going to pitch at the next level and, and Doolittle was pegged a, as a hitter. So Sometimes you don't know, and I am curious to see moving forward with some of these guys who are legit. And this, this year's draft class, I don't think there are like too many guys who are like, oh, you should let them do both. Um, but you're seeing teams, starting with Brendan McKay and the Rays, the, the Angels have a couple of guys, young guys, that, the, that they're doing it with, uh, you know, the last couple of drafts, whether or not they'll at least, when they start out their pro careers, whether they'll let them try to do both. Okay, guys, uh, Jonathan, you're working on a mock draft. Um, how have things changed, if, if much, or if at all, from your first go-around with a full first-round mock? It's been a few weeks now, and I know, you know things aren't changing based on performance, but uh, are you seeing much change from what you were learning a few weeks ago? 
it's more like a shuffling than any like huge change. Uh, you know, I'm looking at my first mock and the names at the top are pretty much the same. Um, you know, I think some of the, the high school, I had the high school arms up pretty high in my first go round. you know, the more and more we, you know, we're talking to people and we're getting closer to the draft. I think they're settling down uh, to the lower parts of the first round, if not out of the first round. Um, I, I, you know, I had three high school arms in my first round. The, the last go round, I, I probably only have two this time. Uh, nothing like really, really earth shattering. I think the, for me, the outside of those high school arms, the biggest wild card to figure out continues to be Garrett Mitchell, uh, the outfielder from UCLA. Um, and I don't want to, you know, sort of belabor uh, the point, uh, but based just on pure raw tools, he belongs up at the top of the first round, uh, certainly in the top 10, if not top five. Uh, but some inconsistent performances, it's gotten dinged up, uh, hadn't really hit for much power, uh, although he was starting to this year. And then the sort of elephant in the room is that he's type one diabetic. We've t- talked about it before. I talked to him about it when he was in high school. He's been living with it for a very long time and has, and has done a fantastic job of managing it and excelling as a as a top collegiate athlete. But it's another hurdle for him to play you know, 140, 150 plus games in a year. And those questions need to be answered. And he's been the one who's been trickiest for me to figure out where where he's going to go. But it's a lot of the same names, you know, mostly because you're not getting guys sort of sneaking into the first round because they're continuing to to perform well. Um, you know, a guy like Carson Tucker, uh, Cole's younger brother, I had him at the back end of the first round. Um largely because he was so good in the spring and a lot of people saw him. He may still, I still may tuck him in at the very, very end. Um, he could be a comp you know, round kind of guy as well. But if he had continued to perform like he did early in the spring, then he would be a guy who probably would be continuing to, to float up higher in these mocks. But lack of performance uh, to evaluate makes that uh, a little tougher. Yeah, you know, Mitchell, you know, I know that you've said that he's uh, a wild card and and uh, is one of the more intriguing names. And I, I've been especially intrigued by him just based on the raw tools. And I, I mentioned this in a podcast previously, you know, a 60 hit tool, 50 power, 70 run, 60 arm, that combination of tools is one that we have never given to any draft prospect with uh, it, no one has ever had a hit tool of 60 plus power of 50 plus run of 70 plus that actually doesn't just those three tools alone. We've never given out uh, grades that high for those three tools combined. And then you add in a 60 arm as well. And then, uh, you know, and then I was looking at Jim's last mock where he had him going at 13 to the giants, but with the note that some teams believe he could drop, into the twenties, which, you know, it seems like a guy with these kind of tools, if you can get him in the twenties could potentially down the road be viewed as quite a steal. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, you know, uh, I'm not giving away the farm, but he, I, in my mock, you know, that's coming out, he'll, he'll be, he'll be closer to the, to the 20 range than the 10 range. Um, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of teams who probably thought they weren't going to have any chance. Uh, but as they sort of are fi figuring out that he might be around, I, I have talked to some teams in like the late teens and they're having conversations about him. So I think there, if there's not an expectation, they are preparing for the uh, possibility of Garrett Mitchell being around when, uh, when they pick, which I think under normal circumstances wouldn't be the case. Jonathan, do you find that teams, I mean, we still have, you know, three weeks before the draft, but do you, are you finding that it seems like teams are preparing for more eventualities than usual just because it's an unusual year? I, I know when I was working on my mock last week, teams in the teens felt like they had less sense of what exactly was going to happen. Like, I, I think we all feel like the first five or six guys on our list are going to go pretty good. And, and I, I mean, on our top 200 list are going to go right near the top. But, but after that, teams, you know, like if the number seven guy fell to 15, teams wouldn't be shocked. No, I think, I think that's right. And there's always, you know, listen, every year comes with talks of team picking eighth. And that's there's this year was arbitrarily like they're going to make a deal, you know, and sign someone lower down so they can use it on the lower pick. And by and large, the top picks go with the top players. Um, but, you know, li a, little, a little more limited flexibility, less looks. People are really m more unsure than usual about how all of that will, will play out. And yes, I can, I certainly can say, I, I agree with you that people like, you know, the Phillies picking at 15 are ready. Uh, everyone's always hopeful that someone gets to them when they don't expect, but I think they're, they're more prepared for that, you know, for the unknown uh, for that. And then I think the flip side of that is the back end of the first round, which is always somewhat guesswork. You know, at, at this point, you know, we try to get, uh, get it nailed as we, as we move um, closer, but there are so many names that could sort of filter in and out of the, the 20 to 29 range that, um, you know, I had someone tell me today that college, you know, position players are probably going to filter up position scarcity while the college pitchers may go, you know, that would normally go in that range may slide down because there's a lot of them, you know, so you, there's depth. So I better, I better get my uh, college bat in the twenties because there's not going to be an advanced bat to get later on. I know that, even in the second or maybe even third round, there's going to be some college arms to get. So how that plays out remains to be seen. Jonathan, I think you should go bold. And when you post your mock this week, just let it ride. And that'll be your final mock. Just stick with it. Tell everybody you got the 29 picks right. And you're sticking with that mock. Well, that'll save me a lot of, a lot of time and work. So sure. I'm in. All right, guys, we are going to wrap up this week's podcast with an interview with one of the, top draft prospects in this year's class. He is the top left-handed pitching prospect uh, on this year's draft board. He is on our list, the top pitcher overall in the draft class. And that is Texas A&M left-handed pitcher Asa Lacey. So we're going to wrap up with this and we'll be back next week with more draft and prospect talk on the pipeline podcast. Thanks for joining us. 
So uh, it's Jim Callis here from Emily Pipeline with Asa Lacey of Texas A&M, our highest ranked pitcher for this year's draft. Uh, Asa, how are you doing right now? Obviously not the spring anybody envisioned we'd have. Everybody on your side well and safe? Yes, sir. Everybody's doing well. What are you doing to, to stay busy right now? I mean, obviously you're, you would be getting ready for the SEC tournament, I think, if uh, this was the way things were, were unfolded as expected. What have you been doing from a, a baseball perspective? And I guess you also probably had to keep up with classes this spring too, right, online? Yes, sir. Have access to a private gym here. I've had access ever since I moved or went back home to Kerrville. Um, so I'm working out there four times a week. And um, I'm playing catch. Um, luckily, I've got a teammate. And he's also a catcher, Rody Barker, from Texas A&M as well. And so we're playing catch, and I've started to throw bullpens. This will be my third one. Um, just kind of slowly taper down after the season, and now we're ramping it back up as we get closer to draft day. Has it been hard to kind of figure out exactly what you should be doing? I mean, I guess you knew the, se the college season wasn't coming back. I would anticipate after the draft, you probably aren't going to pitch immediately after the draft. Is it – it's just been kind of maintenance or, I mean, or I, I guess players, if they want now, can submit stuff to an MLB portal. Although I would think in your case, your resume is pretty strong as it is. I mean, what have you been trying to focus on? Just, is it maintenance? Is it trying to improve? What exactly? Yes, sir. Um, I'd say a little bit of both. Um, I'm always looking better, looking to get better each and every day. Um, and so for me, it's been, uh, you know, doing a lot of video work, you know, of my daily catch routine and, and kind of smoothing some things out mechanically um you know just trying to you know to be the best version of myself that I can be um and so that's really I'm looking forward to to going to Houston with a friend and we're going to get to throw on rap soto haven't done that um I'm just trying to have fun and get after it because that's that's why I enjoy this game usually when I talk to to draft prospects this time of year and I ask them you know how much they're kind of keeping up with the draft hype and what's been going on with that They'll talk about how, you know, they're focusing on their team and, and trying to win and get to Omaha, you know, if they're a college player. Obviously, you don't have that this year. How much have you paid attention to all the draft chatter? Did you try to follow what's going on, what's being said, what's being written? Is it harder to ignore that because you don't have games to focus on? Yeah, I'd say it's a little more difficult. Um, the, the only thing that I've really paid attention to is, you know, a while back it was where we even going to have a draft and then it came out that we were going to do one. Okay, well, how long is it going to be, and when's it going to be? So I've I've uh, got contacts that have you know kept me up to date. Um, really, that's about all all I've tried to look at. Um, my mom's keeping me busy around the house. And <laughs> we got two new puppies, so uh, I'm working on my golf game a little bit, doing a couple odd jobs here and there, and really just you know, stay in shape the best possible way I can. What kind of uh, what kind of puppies did you get? Made of mine, found them on the side of the road in Houston. They were about six weeks old. It's a great Pyrenees and an Indian Shepherd, but they're from the same mom. They're going to be big dogs. So, <laughs> so who takes care of them when you're off playing pro ball? Are they coming um, with you or do they stay they're at home? My, they're my mom and dad's dogs. Um, she she wanted a she kind of wanted some big guard dogs. We moved into a new house and I have a big backyard for them to run around in. And uh, I mean, they're they're really they're really hers, but. Um, she just doesn't know that one of them likes me more. So, <laughs> you know, obviously this draft is a lot different for you, Asa, than it was in 2017. I mean, you were on scouting radars. I remember talking to scouts about you back then. There's a lot of time there's a disconnect with high school pitchers between their present stuff and what they could be if they reach a projection, which sometimes makes it difficult to sign, you know, for pro teams to sign them at that point. 
How much interest did you get from pro teams? Were there a lot of teams talking to you when you were coming out of, out of high school three years ago? Um, I say I had a few that were talking to me more than others. Um, I believe the, uh, the, the Padres called me um, with their third round pick. Um, we were actually in San Diego. I had just done the pre-draft workout and, um, you know, it just didn't work out what I wanted um, as far as the monetary value goes and the school, the, the scholarship plan as well. So, you know, no hard feelings. Um, but that's really the only offer I got besides um, the Indians courtesy picking me in, in the 31st round. So. And I know, you know, just from your background, you're from Tivy High School there in, in Kerrville, which is also the alma mater of Johnny Manziel. Have you ever met Johnny Manziel? Uh, do, you, do you have I any have Johnny not, Manziel stories for us? I, I have not, unfortunately. Um, so I lived in College Station until I was in eighth grade and moved to Kerrville. And when I moved, he went to A&M. And so we okay. kind of like swapped places. Um, I've heard a lot of stories, coaches and guys that have played with him and stuff like that. And I mean, it's incredible. I mean, just going into our football field house and seeing all the awards and stuff like that and just how much of a freak he was on the football field. But unfortunately, I haven't gotten to meet him. And he was a Padres draft pick. He actually, the Padres actually did take him. Uh, he wasn't going to sign because he was going for the NFL at that point. But, uh, and then I guess I, I was reading up a little bit. I did not realize until I was, I was reading that Jim Morris, the rookie, is from Kerrville. Now, did you have a connection with him? Did you take pitching lessons or some kind of instruction with him? Yes, sir. So I, I don't exactly know when he moved to Kerrville, um, but he'd been here for a couple of years when we had gotten here. Um, had really been out of coaching, giving lessons, and uh, my mom ran into his neighbor and we got connected and um, he gave me pitching lessons for about three years before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's he's made a very successful and healthy comeback so extremely you know honored and, and proud just to see him and where he's at today and doing all of his motivational speaking and stuff like that but um, he really he really taught me a lot and pushed me in a short span had you seen the movie the rookie before you met him did you know who he was yes. when, you, when you first yeah. met him Dennis Quaid just doesn't really do him justice. I mean, he's a large, <laughs> being, um, incredibly talented, uh, was drafted actually uh, by the Raiders as a punter. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd seen the movie several times. And so it was almost, you know, surreal to actually meet the man that the movie was about. <laughs> and he told me a lot of stories. He said it was about 80% true, 20%, you know, Hollywood. They got a drum, they got to jazz it up a little bit, but it was, it was a good movie. I remember taking my kids to that movie when that, uh, that came out. So Again, you know, this is not a normal spring for anyone. And one of the things prospects like yourself have had to adapt to instead of maybe meeting with scouts at prearranged times or bumping into guys before a game, I've talked to guys, a lot of Zoom meetings. You've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings with teams. What, what has that been like? It, it seems like some of these teams, you even get five or six people on a call at once. How, how many Zoom meetings have you done and, and what have those been like? Um, I've done quite a few. I still have a couple more lined up in the near future. Um, yeah, it's been, you know, I mean, sometimes you've got questions coming from all over the place. So, but it's kind of like doing a, you know, basically a job interview. Like I did quite a few in the fall um, with teams and you've got a couple of guys there, most of their pitching guys, and they're asking you different kinds of questions. And so you're just having to really, you know, lock in and give your best answer. What's the strangest question you've been asked in the Zoom meeting? You don't have to identify the team, but what's the strangest question you've been asked? Strangest question. Um, man, that's a tough one. Um, probably. Hmm. Let me think about this here for a second. 
I don't know about strangest, but probably the hardest one to ask or, or the hardest one to answer would be um, when they ask you what your your weaknesses are off the field is not not as a baseball player, but as a man, as a human being. Those are I wouldn't necessarily it's out of the blue. I mean, I, I can understand why they ask that, but it's definitely something that's hard because no one likes to talk bad about themselves. Right. So probably trying to see how quick you can think on your feet if they throw you a question you weren't weren't expecting that type yeah. of thing i've got i've gotten a few i've gotten a few weird ones um you know like how i mean you can obviously say what team this is to but you know how would i pitch at course field or something like that um and honestly i i don't know i've, I've only pitched in colorado once and it was when i was 14 so yeah no it's interesting i mean i guess if i'm the rockies i'd probably ask that question just to see what people think maybe get in your mind a little bit about how you approach pitching you know, on that subject, I always like to ask players to kind of scout themselves. So, Ace, I mean, you're known, uh, you know, from talking to scouts, really good fastball, really good slider, really good changeup, curveball too. How would you rank your four pitches from best to worst, and, and how would you describe them if you were scouting yourself? Um, I attack with the fastball. Um, you know, it's my predominant pitch. Um, I'd probably grade it first or rank it first in my repertoire. Then I, I'm a really I'm a big fan of my changeup. I threw two changeups. I throw a, a two seam, which is a little harder of a changeup. It's more of a sinker. I implemented that this past fall. Um, ended up knocking about 400 RPMs off of it. Was really happy with it. And then my traditional circle change, which is basically just a four seam changeup. Um, those are honestly my favorite pitches to throw. I'd grade them second, and and made a lot, lot of strides with my slider. Firmed it up. Um, how where it's my it's my cutter really I'd rank it third and then um, and you can call it a slider if you want I'd probably from the season I would call it a slider but I've made some adjustments to it since then and then the curveball last but um, I'm I'm really really close to getting it where I want it to be so okay and then you know I was noticing looking at our, our top prospect list on the college side you've played either with Team USA or against in the SEC, almost all the other top guys on the list. So I was just curious, your impressions. The top three college hitters we have on our list are Spencer Torkelson, uh, who you played with on Team USA, uh, Austin Martin, who you played you know, with, against you know, with Vanderbilt in the SEC, and then Gonzalez. You know, Nick Gonzalez, I know you played New Mexico State this year. Just what are your general impressions of those guys, the three best college hitters in this year's draft? Yeah. Well, number one, I mean, they're all incredibly talented. And, and number number two, um, I thought they were all, you know, great guys. They're humble. Um, they work very hard. Um, you know, I got to play with Spencer and Austin, Team USA. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, Austin played center field and was completely comfortable there. So you could see his versatility there. Uh, the back control with both of them and sort of hit some long, long home runs for Team USA. And we were all just like, wow. <laughs> so. Um, and then Nick Gonzalez, I mean, just watching his batting practice, uh, I mean, you could tell he was he was special compared to everybody else on the field. And it's not knocking any of our players or theirs, but you could tell he was just different. And then uh, from a pitching standpoint, I don't know if you've ever gone head-to-head -head against Emerson Hancock of Georgia in the SEC, but I know you were on Team USA with Reed Detmers and Max Meyer. And those, yes. along with you, are the four best college pitchers we have on this year's list. What are your impressions of them? If you could take one pitch from one of those guys, which pitch would you take? Well, I was getting, I was looking forward to facing Emerson this year at our place. Um, wasn't able to. Uh, Reed definitely is curveball. I mean, his curveball is just, I mean, it's, 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 
it's wipeout. And then Max, um, I'd probably like to take his slider over mine. It's got it's got more depth. Um, I mean, Emerson throws all four that are just about as impressive. So I can't really I can't really pick one out there. But all all three guys are. I, I, I like I'd like to pick their brains. I got to pick Reed and Max's brain a little bit. Um, a lot of us were were kind of mind boggled about how Max holds some of his pitches and how he's able to throw them with, with that velocity and spin and stuff. So that was, you know, very eye opening. Yeah. I, I've had some scouts tell me they think his slider might be the best individual pitch in the whole draft, That it's, it's, yeah, that wicked. I, I would, I would agree. Well, I think that's everything I had for you, AC, Asa. I really appreciate it. You, you coming on with us. Good luck going forward with the draft, which is, is three weeks away. Where are you going to, uh, spend the draft i mean i assume at home like most people are, are spending at home but wait what are your plans for draft night do you have any yet um not quite yet nothing finalized but um you know have a lot of friends and family in college station so uh and just felt comfortable doing it there um we're just trying to find a venue just to do a small gathering with close family and and a few friends so that that's our plan right now Okay, well, thanks a lot, AC. I look forward to seeing you on the mound, hopefully not in the too distant future, and uh, good luck uh, leading up to the draft and afterward. Thanks a lot. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me.